You're listening to I Have Some Notes, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Hey, Liam, how about a story about a young woman who travels back to the 1960s while she sleeps, only to discover it's a cesspool of abusive men and broken dreams? That sounds like a good premise for a heavy drama about patriarchal trauma. Oh yeah, and in the end, it turns out the real villain is other women. I have some notes. Welcome everyone to I Have Some Notes, the movie podcast with cuts, keeps, punch-ups, and tweaks on mediocre movies as suggested by you. I'm your host, Liam Kreswick. I'm Scott C. Bourgeois. And I'm Greg Beaver. And today we are discussing 2021's Last Night in Soho, uh, as suggested by listener uh, Chris at Newfangled on Twitter. Yeah, Last Night in Soho. Uh, Edgar Wright, uh, up until recently, one of my favorite directors. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Up until recently. Yeah, I guess I would um well actually the thing I really want to start this episode off with is is a trigger warning for any of our listeners. Um this movie definitely deals with uh sexual uh violence and abuse. Um and so that's not something you you want to hear three dudes discuss. Um valid. Um just giving you the heads up now that the, this movie and therefore our discussion uh traffics in those themes. Uh, also, if in the past uh we have ever touched on those subjects without a trigger warning, uh I would like to apologize. Uh, for for not really having trigger warnings up until today. Um, not that they come up that often, but I, I don't think we've ever actually given a trigger warning. So I apologize if if we have ever uh, caught someone uh, off guard with uh, the way the discussion goes. So. Yeah, before uh, before we uh, we get into uh, into talking about Edgar Wright and last night in Soho, if you'll permit me, I have something unrelated that I want to get off my chest. Sure, we gotta. <laughs> so, if uh, only you had a public forum in which yeah, to do it. <laughs> if only I had a place to rant and rave about. This is things. this is our new segment called Greg's Gripes. <laughs> so, uh, can we cue the Greg's Gripes theme song, please? <laughs> oh, we don't. We don't have one. Okay, never mind. Go go ahead with your. <laughs> uh, so I gave in and and started watching Andor, and and mm-hmm. as you and the listeners probably already know after a bunch of mediocre and outright terrible movies i have not been interested in revisiting revisiting the star wars universe uh so initially when i heard andor was good i was like well whatever like uh, i've heard this before and i've been underwhelmed uh but the praise kept getting louder uh and i'll admit i'll to experiencing some deep fomo over it and then Aaron just started watching it, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> fine." And so, like, I started catching up. Uh, before before you get into it, can you uh, just because uh, I haven't seen it yet? Can you tell me what are the two options they're presenting in this movie? What are the two options? Yeah, it's and or like it's something <laughs> and or something else. <laughs> I think the two options that they're offering are fascism and resistance. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just... 
Go, go on. <laughs> That's fair. That's a good one. I appreciate that you stopped me for that. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, I'm annoyed that it's good. Uh, I I wanted to be done with this franchise, uh, and now I can't wait to watch the next episode. I'm especially annoyed that it took decades of mediocre movies and an endless parade of fan service to finally get something that is different, interesting, and actually has something to say about the world we live in. Like, <laughs> I dare say, like, and or maybe philosophically instructive in how we need to fight fascism. So uh, there's a take. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's far from perfect. And like, there's literally like a plot point that Aaron and I had to look up on the internet because we were like, what's going on? Uh, and it occasionally maybe is a wee bit too sympathetic to the fascists, but overall, very good. Uh, I'm annoyed that I'm watching Star Wars again. Uh, <laughs> please stop telling me to watch it. <laughs> I'm watching it. <laughs> Yeah, you seemed very done with it after uh, we did our Rise of Skywalker episode at the end of last season because you revisited the the, the modern trilogy and you I vividly remember you being like, "I'm done thinking about Star Wars for a while. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it." Yeah, uh, I mean, it helps that Andor is not like it's it's about as far away from Star Wars as as most Star Wars are. So at least there's at that. But you know, uh, somewhat related note, um, I had just started watching something without Anita on kind of a lark and, and partly because it had been recommended and because people kept saying it was good. And that was Wednesday on Netflix. Oh. Um, I, when, when I heard the elevator pitch for Wednesday, I said, please, no, thank you. Cause it sounded like something I did not want in the slightest. Um, I have very fond memories of the original Adams family movie grow, growing up. Um, the one with Rawls Julia and Adam's family's more, uh, recent outings have also been pretty mediocre at best or very like directed at kids. So when I heard this Tim Burton series uh, premise, I was like, this sounds like it'll be real bad. And oh boy, am I happy to be wrong. It actually is pretty good. <laughs> You're um, not annoyed like Greg is? No. <laughs> to be uh, annoyed to I'm, be watching I'm actually, good content? <laughs> I'm happy to be watching good content. I, I thought it was, like, it's it's very twee, I'll give it that, but, like, it it kind of threads the needle of what it wants to be, and it was fun, and it was, like, because you can just binge the whole thing on Netflix all at once. You just, like, get through it, and I enjoyed it. So, yeah. If we're just throwing out random content that we recently yeah. consumed that surprised us with its quality, I'll shout out Wednesday, sure. Sure. Yeah, especially it's TV and movie podcast, but just make it make it an even three. I've been watching Welcome to Chippendales. Uh, that's pretty entertaining. I, uh, I heard Disney it was Plus. good, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is one of those dramas where you're like, man, if everybody just had, like, gratitude, patience, and empathy for one another, there none of them would drama. have problems. <laughs> but there mm -hmm. wouldn't be a drama then. But, like, there's <laughs> yeah. so many scenes in that movie where it's like, just stop being a dick to each other. Um, <laughs> Ironic. Yeah. In a Chippendales that everyone's yeah. being a dick. Hey, <laughs> um, speaking of uh, dickish men, we are talking about uh, uh, Last Night in Soho tonight. Um, and yeah, was this is uh, this is the second time I had watched uh, this one. I, I watched it when it first hit streaming. I didn't quite make it to the theater. It was still a little too pandemic-y for me to go to the theater for this one. Um can we circle back around to the beginning of this conversation? Because you had said 
that oh, yeah. Edgar Wright used to be your favorite director, and I want to pick one, your brain about of, that. Yeah, I. so having watched this one twice, and then also very recently, um, I showed my partner Amanda um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which I loved when it came out. Like, loved, loved, loved. Loved the graphic novels. Um, truly, you know... I realize I'm a, I'm a white man, so I'm already pretty well represented in media, but, like, the Scott Pilgrim comics, I was like, this is me. This is why representation matters. Like, I really <laughs> connected with them. I really liked those comics. Really liked this movie. Uh, and then watching Scott Pilgrim again, just shy of a decade later, I was like, ugh, this is not as good as I remember it. Um and and just some other reflections and things I've I've seen people criticizing Edgar Wright, especially hot on the heels of last night in Soho. Uh, I've just just fallen out of love with him a little bit. Uh, I'm kind of the rose colored glasses have come off for some of his work. Um, I'm now reluctant to go back and watch um, Baby Driver. Uh, reluctant to go back and watch uh, Shaun of the Dead. Um, yeah, it just it's just it's it really made me feel aware of the process of growing out of artists and it really reminded me of how i felt about kevin smith about a decade ago mm-hmm. where from like mm. being about 16 to my mid-20s i was like kevin smith can do no wrong i fucking love kevin smith movies and then uh, you know reading enough criticism and and watching it sort of some of those movies a second or third time well and, you and- start to be like oh maybe maybe he's not a auteur genius maybe he's just like a pretty funny guy like but also watching it as a as a more nuanced consumer of media because you're yeah even just from doing this podcast in the last couple of years you become more um literate in the way yeah. that you consume a film like i found that's the case with me i know greg has mentioned it before that that's the case with him you kind of you kind of automatically do that a little bit, and it becomes harder to just shut off your brain and let it wash over you. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a little so. bit of a, a little bit of a curse to be to be watching movies at a, at a critical level sometimes. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I've actually uh, rewatched films in recent years which I've appreciated more because of that. Where I've been like, oh. I see what they were going with here now, and I kind yeah. of get that. Or, oh, you know what? I found something that I really like about this movie. I, the story is garbage, but it's it's beautiful to look at. Like, yeah, I think that now that I I'm um, a lot better at understanding film language. Um, there's so much more that I can. I like. There's so many smaller details that I really appreciate and love. It definitely enhances your enjoyment uh, of the film uh, or of movies in general to have that knowledge. Yeah. So, but yeah, just, just reflecting on Edgar Wright, I had sort of flashbacks to the, the waning love I had for Kevin Smith in my mid twenties. I'm now in my mid thirties and don't have quite the, the hard on for Edgar Wright that I used to Sparks brothers, still a great documentary. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, it was just a tough one to watch a second time. Cause it really drove home that he's maybe not the genius that I thought he was. So. I occasionally find that like sometimes I watch movies that I loved and then I and I watch it seeing all the flaws and then you know I'll put it I'll put it down for a while and then pick it up you know years later and I'll watch it again and love it so it you know you never know <laughs> you, it's just sometimes it can depend on the context with which you're watching it yeah 
true. I, I have, yep, a lot of that stuff too. Where it's, it's, I, I have noticed that some stuff I come back on. There was a, a period where I, I, you know, in high school, I loved Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And then somewhere around college, I was too cool for it and couldn't believe I watched that. And now I'm like, wait, never mind. That's a great cartoon. It's brilliant. Um, so yeah, it's just this, this, the cycle of, of media as you get older was just, uh, very present in my viewing of this movie and just thought I'd highlight that. Um, and yeah, this was my second time with it. How about you guys? First time. First time? Second time as well. Uh, Scott, how did you find it with, with watching that mystery unravel? Um, quote unquote mystery. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree. Quote unquote mystery. I kind of pegged to, I, I kind of figured out where the movie was going by about the third act. I, I kind of got where the trajectory was going and, and what the reveal was going to be. But like through much of the middle act, I was confused at points and it has mm-hmm. a, and it had a slow start. Like it took a while for the movie to get its hooks in me. Um, when it did, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm here now. I'm, I'm plugged in. I'm, I'm good to go. It just took a while for me to get there. And then the middle part of the movie was like, I don't know what it's going for. And by the time (laughs) I figured out what it was going for, I knew where it was going. And so, (laughs) but the weird thing is there was a lot that I did like about the movie too. Like Mm -hmm. Edgar Wright is, is say what you will say what Liam just said. He is a very skilled Mm -hmm. director. He's a great editor. He's got a, a good head for like putting in his needle drops um, I thought the acting was very good, even if the story was a little man, the characters were a little man, the acting was very good. Um, mm-hmm. I loved the beautiful use of colors because it evoked a giallo for me. Um, like a very like lurid kind of Italian, uh, mystery story. Um, and I like, I like my giallo film. So the fact that it was mm-hmm. very much influenced by that was, I could, I could see, and, uh, yeah, so there was stuff there to like, it just, it kind of didn't quite land with me, which is weird. Cause I was reading some of the reviews on letterboxd of people who have, who I follow, whose uh, tastes I tend to line up with, uh, and they all seem to really like it. And I was like, what am I missing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, I... Yeah. Um, I, I, have, to, I have to say, like, sorry, uh, Liam, that, uh, when, when you guys were going back and forth on the chat, like I'd, I'd seen it before, but you guys had rewatched it, uh, before I rewatched it on, uh, last night and you were going back and forth in the chat talking about the movie and what was wrong with it and that kind of stuff. And everything you were talking about, I was like, I didn't remember any of it. Like I didn't, I was like, and I, and I, I actually kind of think that it's possible that my brain got scrambled with last night in Soho and Cruella, um, just because there's that fashion designer, <laughs> yeah, 60s fashion, <laughs> yeah, and I think I think I had watched them sort of in the in the same uh within within a few months of each other or something like that and just like you just kind of conflated them yeah and i think and because we had watched it we had done a show on it i had thought much more critically about cruella and therefore it was it stuck in my mind a lot a lot more so yeah i it, I, it was really necessary for me to rewatch <laughs> it because had i not i would have not been prepared for the podcast at all yeah, there are there are quite a few similarities to this in Cruella. And actually, uh, before I don't want to forget to mention this, but I would actually love to recommend 
some movies that are similar to this. Um, for anyone who might want to watch films where there is some level of either catharsis or revenge or just just the processing of uh, sexual trauma, like catharsis a- against um, sexual predators, uh, I highly recommend Promising Young Woman. Oh, yeah. And I highly recommend yeah. Hard Candy. Um, those, those are, if you, if you want to watch sexual predators get their comeuppance, watch Hard Candy and Promising Young Woman before you watch this one. Uh, and you'll, you'll get much more out of it than, than you do out of this. So yeah, I just didn't, didn't want to forget to mention those because watching this a second time, I'm like, man, this, yeah, I would rather watch either of those movies. Um, pretty much any day of the week. Uh, of course, the cast on this one is uh, Thomasin McKenzie uh, as Eloise, uh, the, the main uh, protagonist, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy as Sandy, and I said it right this time, I'm sorry <laughs> for anyone who listened to the New Mutants episode where I called her Anna Taylor-Joy multiple times, and no one corrected me, um, <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy as Sandy, and Matt Smith as Jack. Yeah, you know, let's, uh, let's go to the trailer summary. Last night, I had a dream. There was a girl. I got this kind of gift. And you are? Sandy. I can see people, places. So I'll see you again. You know where to find me. But they're not just dreams. They really happened. What did you see, A girl murdered. You witnessed the murder last night. You believe this was a vision. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? Do you believe in ghosts? Save yourself! Eloise is intoxicated by the glamour of nightlife in the 1960s. As a talented fashion designer, she is a young woman with many gifts, including the ability to see her dead mother in the mirror. How or why has she obtained this power? Don't worry, you won't find out. When Eloise is accepted into a prestigious fashion school in London, her grandmother protests. It seems her mother also possessed The Shining and also lost herself in the big smoke. Upon her arrival, Eloise immediately begins to have dreams or hallucinations about the 60s, specifically about an aspiring singer named Sandy. The glamour fades, though, when Sandy is forced into prostitution. As Sandy's life spins out of control, so too does Eloise's mind, unable to distinguish between her visions and reality. When she witnesses Sandy's murder, Eloise reaches a breaking point she may never recover from. Um, are you both familiar with the sort of story of how this movie got its title? No. Uh, and how it involves Quentin Tarantino? No. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'd heard this and then went and looked it up to make sure it wasn't just something I dreamt or whatever. But <laughs> you Google last night in Soho, Quentin Tarantino, you'll you'll get this story straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, apparently, Tarantino and Edgar Wright are friends. Uh, they were talking about the soundtrack to Death Proof and how uh, Tarantino used a song by a band called Dave D. Dozy Beaky Mick and Titch um, in uh, uh, Death Proof, um, and then started talking about other songs by that band and they apparently have a great song called last night in Soho, which appears at the end of this movie. 
uh, and uh, Tarantino says to to Edgar Wright, like, oh my, that that movie or that song has to be the best opening to a movie ever. I can't. That's got to be that song should be at the start of a movie. Can't imagine anything better. And then Edgar Wright was already working on this movie with a different title. Realized not only does it make a great title, it makes it a great inclusion in the soundtrack. Put it at the end for some reason, um, <laughs> even though the conversation is about how it makes a great opening thing. Um, but just I thought that was sort of an interesting uh, little factoid that that yeah, this uh, this movie's title and part of its soundtrack came uh, at the suggestion of Quentin Tarantino. Cool. Hmm. But also bafflingly, he put it at the end of the movie, even though the whole conversation <laughs> was about how this should be at the start of a movie. So. Well, I, I, I mean, I mentioned in the chat that uh, to start things at the end where they should be at the beginning, uh, that Eloise makes a choice um, at the end to kind of let it go. But I'm not certain what it is she's supposed to be letting go of. Like, is it mm-hmm. her mother? Is it her obsession with Sandy? Uh, and her desire to live in the past, or is she, I don't know, is she meant to be, like, accepting herself for who she is in some way? I'm not, like, I'm just not entirely sure. And I think the ambiguity of the ending is baked in because of the ambiguity of the opening scene, where we get kind of, like, the setup for Eloise, but, like, kind of not a lot of, like, the... Uh, important details I feel about like who her mother was uh, and what these gifts that she has and and what they're all about and how they work. Um, There's the implication that her mother committed suicide because she was schizophrenic and that her grandmother is concerned for Eloise because she's worried that that might be carried on. Um, And, Certainly, there's the implication there. We as the audience are supposed to wonder, is Eloise seeing things like is this all in her head? Is all of it just made up? And the problem is that that doesn't work because we're never we're never given reason to doubt what Eloise is seeing, like really Mm -hmm. objectively out because none of the people around her really confront her about the fact that she might be crazy outright like her her boyfriend john uh who's a super nice guy through the entire movie um is very supportive of her and believes her when when she kind of tells him her grandmother never really outright states like are you sure this is happening there's the implication the police don't necessarily believe her but they even they soft pedal that it's not until the very end when Sandy is like, they all think you're crazy that she's actually confronted with that. But at no point elsewhere in the movie, does she or anyone else have any reason to doubt what she's seeing? And because of that, it fails as a psychological drama. Um, Because like all of, and, and the worst part of that is her visions are all objectively true, except for one, one vision outright (laughs) lies to her. And that is so misleading to us as the audience, despite the fact that it's very clear before the reveal that the that the vision was a lie, that it was a lie, it's weird that that vision lies to her. Yeah, and yeah, that is that is such a baffling decision. <laughs> yeah, I I wasn't even that hung up on the fact that's like, is this a ghost thing or a schizophrenia thing? I was kind of or like, how did she get these powers? How did she? I was okay just sort of letting that be. That was not a real pressing question for me, but. I understand why people had that 
and it does nothing to help the absolutely tonally disconnected third act that makes very little sense. Uh, and you're right, like you, you said, soft pedaling, I think, is is the 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 right word where it just it all the things that kind of work about it, it doesn't lean on hard enough, and uh, yeah. then it mushes it all up with a bunch of nonsense it doesn't need. Um, and conf- conflates the whole thing into a, a real garbled mess. We were we were really sweating doing this one because it's it's a <laughs> tangled web of, of yeah nonsense. Because I'm <laughs> this is one of those movies where it's so dense that my concern is if you pull one thread, the whole thing comes apart. Right? Yeah, I'm uh, so excited for like my it's, fixes. It's, I, it's a messy <laughs> tapestry, and you don't necessarily want to just take the whole thing apart. But you, you, I'm worried that if you tug on anything, it just comes right off the wall. I think that uh, you know once once the dream sequences start, like I think the the real the the real big issue is that there's not we don't get a lot of time with uh, with her real life after that. Like we just kind of like keep going back into the the sequence. And and to to be fair, like to the movie, like those sequences are all the most interesting parts. But you know, it's where we don't get the development of the characters in her real life to get any sort of like um, pushback on, on the things that she's experiencing. Um, And Mm. like you say, Scott, right. So like, uh, like you said earlier, the boyfriend is always very, very supportive. Um, You you know, there's no, there's no really real conflict there, except like when he kind of gets involved in like potentially like raping her kind of thing, or like it's, it's, it's not, uh, I don't want to say he's not, he's not caught up in raping her. He's like, you know, it's, it's implied that she thinks he might've, or, or that, you know, there's a, there's sexual violence going on, going on in her, in her dream. And like, it's conflating those two things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the conflict, but that stuff kind of resolves very quickly and really nothing is made of the conflict with her initial roommate at the, uh, mm-hmm. at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, who is, you know, this stereotypical mean girl. And there's lots of time spent setting her up and then absolutely no payoff. <laughs> yeah, she's... She's completely... It's completely pointless. Like, the the only thing... What happens is that eventually, through, a, like, her hallucinations, she ends up trying to stab her with scissors. And... That, that also, also doesn't go anywhere. Like she doesn't. She just like she just dump 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 and just like goes along her life and and keeps doing her thing. But like at no point is she get does she get in trouble with, from the school or law or anything. And yeah, it's just like yeah. Um, there's so much uh, about yeah, her real life that's just missing. Well, and more to that, as she gets more and more caught up in Sandy's life and in the the thought that Sandy may have been murdered and that there's like some justice she needs to bring there's implications that it's coming at the cost of her real life like there's the she miss she's missing uh shifts at the bar she's using this uh school archives for reasons other than her yeah. studies which implies that she's letting her studies slide uh she at one point like rips Ripping up, up her dress one of her dresses um she hasn't been calling her grandmother like her personal life and she's been driving away this boy who she's interested in um it's implied that this is all coming at a cost to her personal life but it doesn't like there's no consequence in her personal life it all just slides right by 
yeah, and, and in service of this, like, non-mystery about what happened to Sandy, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm very excited for my notes, because you've, you've touched on all the things I observed on a second watch, and I truly think I have untangled it, but we're a ways away from that. Um, obviously, what, like, it's still an Edgar Wright movie, it's still pretty, like, what did we like? Obviously, the needle drops dope, even though the Dave D. Dozy, Beaky McIntyre song comes at the end, should come at the beginning, that's what my pal Quentin said. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the soundtrack slaps, the, uh, just the whole aesthetic is very Edgar Wrighty in the best way possible. Um, yeah, as I said, I, I like that it's very evocative of an old Giallo movie. I think that's really good. I think that was a good decision. I just think it should have been written better. Um, I think yeah, the acting I, is excellent. I think the casting is good. Matt Smith, guys, we he's been in two movies so far this season. Between this <laughs> yeah, so, and so Morbius. Taylor and, he's been, and he has been one of the highlights in both of those films. This guy mm-hmm. is clearly having fun in these movies, and I appreciate that. Yeah, he just needed a new manager because... He's not picking the best projects for him, it seems like. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, although, I mean, to be fair to his manager, I guess, like if you're like, I'm going to get you an Edgar Wright film, you'd think slam dunk. But, uh, I'm going to get you in a in a Marvel movie, slam dunk. Like- <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I I, uh, I think, I mean, lo- most of the dream sequences are are, are quite good. I, I think. The the initial dream sequence where they're playing with the mirrors and the reflections and the dance mm-hmm. sequence, uh, you know, you, you know, you can tell that that's all done practically and it looks fantastic um, and really inventive and creative. The way they're hiding like cuts and movements and all that kind of stuff. It's a uh, yeah that that stuff was a lot of fun and I, I you know I think that's you know kind of par for the course with Edgar Wright. I think when you you know, come to an Edgar Wright film, you're at least assured that it's going to be a visual feast, and it did not disappoint in that particular way. Um, I, I was initially kind of uh, enjoying the needle drops, and then they got to be a bit too much. I guess we can talk about that a little bit later, but like um, initially, that it was, you know, he he te- he he uses music in his in his uh, films, and I'm not sure how to describe this. If, if it was visually, I would call it high key. But he, he he uses music in a very uh, bright, loud fashion um, that grabs your attention right away. Um, and I don't know, maybe he's got like a, a just a, a really good sound guy that he's been working with for years. But like, it's been a key feature of most of his films. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I love it. I um, I don't know if like this soundtrack specifically is like, ooh, I love these songs, but I've that is one thing I've always appreciated about Edgar Wright movies because I'm a big I'm a big playlist guy. I, I get you know I get my nine bucks a month out of my Spotify. I really like making playlists, themes to things. I make a lot of playlists for my D and D games and characters. Um, it's just a really interesting way to like articulate an idea while also sharing music you love. Is to be like, I made this playlist for. Um, so I, I, I appreciate that about his, his stuff, uh, even if it's not always music, I'm super stoked on. Uh, it's also just fun to say Dave D. Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. <laughs> Anything else we liked? That was a long pause. I like a good ghost story. Yeah. Uh, I, a, a I enjoyed... I enjoyed. I forget her name. Uh, the woman from uh, Game of Thrones. 
Uh, oh boy, what's her what's her name? Miss Diana Rigg. You're talking about uh, Dame Diana Rigg. Dame Diana Rigg. There you go. <laughs> uh, you're Miss Collins, right? That's like, yeah, yes. that's right. Who is she in Game of Thrones? She uh, plays Elena Tyrell. Yeah, uh, who is she's the one of the biggest highlights of that series, actually. Uh, the like the the lady with the head wrap who's always having talks of betrayal in the garden. Correct. Damn, I did she's, not recognize her. Nice. Okay. I mean, she's <laughs> she's probably most famous for playing Emma Peel in the Avengers TV series. And that must have been deliberate then to, to get like a '60s throwback. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's a, this, this was actually um, her last film. Too. I was going to say, uh, I think this is her last film. Yeah. 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 So uh, she also does not disappoint, and she's she's very. Very good at at being uh, quietly threatening. Um, I will also say one thing that I did like about the movie um, is that she is very good at dropping clues about her true identity that all make sense in context once you get the reveal. And again, I I knew the reveal before it happened, but um, like a lot of her comments right down to her first moment. Um, all leads up to that. And that's actually, I think, very some very deft writing in what is otherwise a kind of mishmash story. Um, because, like, she's only renting out the apartment to a woman. She uh, gets really upset when she thinks that she's snuck in a man, which is explicitly against her rules. She outright tells her, if I had caught him before he got out of the house, I would have killed him. Um, and you think she's joking in that moment. She is not like there's, there's a lot of like really good, uh, pipe being laid for that reveal. It's just that the rest of the movie kind of Mm -hmm. isn't as good as that particular part of the mystery. I wish Lindsay, the cop got such, uh, thoughtful foreshadowing. Cause holy shit. He did not. (laughs) No, he did not. (laughs) Yeah, he that. he rather, um, yeah. It's like the, in the same way that the the movie uh, somewhat cheats by having uh, Eloise's dream lie to her, it also seems to cheat with the with Lindsay because it's just like the guy is like mustache twirling the whole time, and like there's there's no uh, there's no intimation that he might not be uh, Matt Smith right? prior to yeah. That, yeah. It's mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's not creating a mystery by leaving clues couched in subtlety and subterfuge. It's just lying to you. Both the, the vision scene where she sees Sandy get murdered, even though Sandy never gets murdered. And then, yeah, this guy is like, there's nothing other than like one line where he goes, I always said Sandy was too good for this stuff, which is technically something the cop said in the sixties. There's no, the movie, okay, so uh, see how they run. Great movie, just came out. There's a a refrain in that movie where the detective keeps telling his partner, don't jump to conclusions. Don't jump to conclusions. And that's sort of what makes that mystery of that movie work so well is because you're consistently reminded, don't jump to conclusions, even though you're seeing things that would make sense. This movie needs you to jump to conclusions, holds your hand right up to the con- conclusion. It's like, this is the conclusion you should come to. 
just kidding. It's a lie. Fuck you. Like it's, it's, it's yeah. not subtle in that way. It's really no. frustrating. Yeah. It, it creates a mystery surrounding Lindsay by withholding information. Yeah. Um, not, not giving us tantalizing clues. And then it outright lies to us once. And yeah. that's like, that does not a good mystery make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It barely <laughs> does it with Sandy. I like that you gave the credit Scott, but I, it, they barely do it with Sandy. They do it better than they do anywhere else. Yes, I th- I think in fact when you when you watch the the tarot stamp stuff on rewatch, um, it's almost laughable the yeah. way that the, that character is written and played. Um, because when you, when you know the mystery, you like you know and you know he's not uh, the the killer. Uh, it really just seems like the way he interacts with Eloise is just bizarre. And there's there's no rhyme or like reason of, to of it. Of course, she and the audience would think he's an aged Matt Smith. That's yeah, it's and yeah, watching it a second time when you know it's all coming exactly like you said. And I think the first like the first watch of this movie, you it gets away with a lot because you're sitting there bracing for some kind of like reveal or clue. And then when it doesn't all really come together in a way that makes sense at the end, you don't, you just sort of get the relief of like, well, the movie's over and I got some kind of a conclusion. That's why a lot of people describe it as like not very satisfying as opposed to like outright bad and confusing. It's because it doesn't, like, like we said, it, 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 yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm sort of, yeah, it's like, it's like I said off the top, but it's just like the, you know, we don't really we don't really get a, a sense of what um, Eloise's arc was and, and what she had kind of accomplished. Um, it's also like the revenge part of it is also mm. kind of muddied by having the ghosts of the men who died plead uh, yes. to be plead for help. So yeah. like suddenly there's this sort of like, moment where we're meant to feel sympathetic to them which is strange and the movie tries to have it both ways but it was still a very curious decision not well, only does it have it try to have both ways with the ghost men pleading for help it turns sandy into a knife wielding maniac in a burning building like it it turned yeah. like this is a psychological thriller with style and the last 15 minutes might as well be a friday the 13th movie yeah like the thing that was weird to me about the ghost men is not even that there's the twist is that they, they want help. They, they need to like, they're trapped. They're in purgatory. They need to be freed. It was the fact that up until that point, all of the framing about them had been like aggressive and grasping yeah, and like, like, like predatory towards Eloise, like that nothing, nothing that they do leading up to the point where that one of them hands her the phone at the end suggests at all that they're looking for her to help. (laughs) She's literally being pinned to the bed by hands coming out of the bed. Yeah. Well, another guy's like, please help us. It's like, you guys are holding her down on the bed. Yeah. She was going to help you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What is wrong with you people? (laughs) Oh, it, the lat like, the the it's kind of confusing until the last 15 minutes when it truly just like bungles the whole thing like it's <laughs> ugh. yeah it doesn't do a good job building up to the ending that it wanted to have <laughs> yep like exactly. thematically 
uh, tonally, story-wise. Yeah, it narratively, had a, tonally, thematically. Yeah, it, it had an ending it wanted to get to, and somehow it failed to get there. <laughs> yeah. The ending it wanted to get to was that sweet song, Last Night in Soho. And again, put it at the beginning. That's what Tarantino said. Um, Wouldn't have been a problem. So, Well, then uh, let's uh, let's say we, we go to our fixes because I'm this. Like we said, this is a real tangled mess, but I've been chewing on it now for a couple of days. And I really think I've cracked it. The thing I'm most intimidated about is can I articulate it verbally in a way that is interesting and engaging? Because you need like a storyboard or some pen and paper for this shit. And uh, I'm going to try my best. Uh, and I'm excited to hear what you guys have as well. So let's uh, hear from our friends at the Alberta Podcast Network. This episode of I Have Some Notes is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Welcome to Super Typical Megabank. How can we disappoint you today? Hi, I'd like to open an account. May I pressure you into considering a pro-disadvantage, high-regret, impersonal, everyday inconvenience savings plan with added compounded confusion at no additional discount or apology? It's one of our top disappointers. I feel so... Disappointed? Yeah. Another unsatisfied customer. Next! If your bank makes you feel like this, it's time you talk to us. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future. Welcome back to I Have Some Notes. We are going to fix Last Night in Soho uh, or Die Trying. Um, probably not Die Trying. I think it's just a podcast. Um, <laughs> stabbed in a burning building trying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Scott, I, I, like I said, I got fixes. I'm really excited to share, but uh, Scott, what do you got first? Well, uh, the reason I wanted to go first is because I don't have like any concrete fixes, but I do have what I'm going to call... It might be a tonal fix because one of the things this movie fails to do is thread the needle on being a psychological drama or a ghost story or both um, because it it doesn't quite lean hard enough on either. And I think it needs to. Um, you need to either lean harder on the psychological drama, make it so that uh, Eloise legitimately thinks she is losing her mind. Um, not just other people are, are questioning her sanity, but she herself is questioning her sanity right up to the end. You can still have it be ghosts, but if you want it to be a psychological drama, she needs to be questioning her reality. And she doesn't at any point in the movie. In fact, she steadfastly in at one point she's presented with evidence that she might be wrong and she sticks to her guns. No, if you want it to be a psychological drama, she needs to be concerned that her world is crumbling. The other option is to make it a ghost story, is to just lean right into it being a ghost story. You can still have her family's history of mental trauma making it hard for other people to believe her. And then you, in that case, you have all of the people around her questioning her sanity, but her absolutely sure that she's right and that she's being haunted. And the movie does neither of those things. And so it, it fails at being... It fails at being effective at either of them. It needs to lean harder on one of those. I don't know which one is necessarily the right one for the story it's trying to tell, but pick a lane, Edgar Wright, because you're driving through the middle of the road and it's not working. Yeah, that's that's very valid. I, I've heard that a lot of that kind of criticism from a lot of other people. I don't think you're wrong. Weirdly, for me, on both viewings, that was not the thing I had a problem with. I was okay accepting, sort of suspending disbelief that this was like 
not quite psychological, not quite supernatural. Really, I just took it as a framing device. It's just a way to tell this story is to sort of have her. Um, uh, maybe I should be more concerned about it. I'm, um, I just want to point out, you can't, listener, I don't mean to cut off Liam, and you can't yeah. see what I just saw, but Aaron just hoved into view behind Greg, and <laughs> she's dressed in black, and like she's in very washed out lighting, and she's got black hair, and I just about had a heart attack because I thought it was a ghost. <laughs> I legitimately got spooked by Aaron in the background of the Discord video that I'm watching, <laughs> and I had it. It was so shocking I had to point it out. <laughs> Okay. I'm sorry, Liam. A, continue. a case for ghost movie. No, I was just saying, I, th- I think you are correct. I think that's a, a sentiment a lot of people expressed. I was weirdly okay with just chalking it up to like, well, this is the framing device. Could be ghosts, could be crazy. Not really the point. However, the fuck is the point? Um, so, yeah, just in, a, in an attempt to not ramble too much for both you know, your guys' sake and our listeners. I'm going to do my best to articulate this because I really feel like I need like a Pepe Sylvia board uh, to like deconstruct this, but I think I've untangled it. And so I'm going to break my thoughts into two parts, mostly just to keep myself from rambling. We talked about it a lot in the beginning. Um, the the reveals are really muddied. Um, it's not so much a mystery as it just withholds information from you. Um, the two most egre- egregious examples of this are when her and John are in bed together and she looks up at the ceiling mirror and sees Sandy being murdered in no uncertain terms by Matt Smith, by Jack. When it turns out that is not the case. She, in fact, murdered Jack. Uh, the, the the visions have not lied up until this point. Why is that a lie? It makes no sense. And we talked about that at the beginning. So right there, obscure it. Make it a little more subtle. Make it just like there is she, she witnesses a man forcing himself on a woman and a knife fight ensuing. That is enough for her to want to throw John off the bed, freak out, have John freak out, have Miss Collins freak out. A couple scenes later, you also see Sandy with a split neck in the, in the designer in the fashion school, cut all that and keep it a mystery. Cause it, it there's the visions should not be lying to us. Um, and we, we touched on that in the beginning. So that's, that's part of the first round of fixes the other one is like we said the 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 cop Lindsay reveal sucks um there should have been more examples like he should have shown up at least one more time than just the one time in in like a montage of her meeting a bunch of men he just seems like the least shitty man in the 60s he barely seems like a benevolent cop looking out for women he just seems like the one guy who's still a creep but slightly above it all um, so I want to see more of him in the sixties and more of him being a benevolent good guy. And also in the scene where she c- confronts him because she's pretty sure she saw Matt Smith kill, uh, uh, Sandy in, in her vision the day before when they're in the bar together, it, like Greg said, it's laughable. If you know what's coming, his dialogue is so mustache turningly, twirlingly sinister. It's nonsense. Have him be slightly more benevolent, slightly less creepy and mean to her, um, especially if we've seen more of him earlier, uh, and then play up some of her hysteria. She kind of like chases him out of the bar, and he runs into the street and dies, and that's where we find out he's actually the benevolent cop, Lindsay. 
much like Greg said, nothing comes of all of these things she's doing in her life. The scissor stabbing, the any of that stuff. I don't think she should be brought up on manslaughter charges or anything, but like the bartender and all the people around should be like, did you chase Lindsay out of the bar accusing him of murder? What's wrong with you, girl? Come on, get your head together. First, you're you know, flailing scissors at your uh, at your classmates. Now this. Come on, come the fuck on. Um, cause it, it, it helps. It just, first of all, makes that reveal better and it adds credulity to her losing her mind and, and becoming hysterical right. and, and not really able <laughs> to tell reality conflict from to the real world. Right. Cause like there yeah, is yeah. no real conflict there. Two things. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Does it ruin the story if she witnesses Jack's murder? Like, rather than have the vision lie to her, what if she sees the whole thing? What if she sees Sandy murder Jack? Hmm. And what if what if then it becomes the question of, like, what, what happened to Sandy after that? Like, did she go to jail? Was she ever caught? Like, there's still a mystery to be unraveled there, and I think that it could still be an interesting one, even if she saw Jack get murdered. Um... It would change the dynamic of the third act. You'd still end up with Sandy as the villain, but mm-hmm. like, um, which is in itself problematic. But like, did did the movie need to lie to us? That's my question. Does it fundamentally unravel the mystery if we see Jack be the victim? Hmm. I, I like think that I've, question. Yeah. Good. I was just gonna say, like, it might be it might be interesting if uh, if it's if it's left no i had this but maybe maybe i've lost it um it might be interesting if uh, eloise knows that jack was murdered but we don't in this in the sense of like she she suddenly understands who sandy is and it rocks her world uh but not for the reasons that we think it does kind of thing like you know mm. you know we we because we it, it might be a fun way of playing with like the audience's assumptions because if you play it a certain way the audience might automatically assume that it was sandy who who dies but because eloise is the one that's watching it she sees exactly what happened she knows she knows that sandy is the is the murderer and um suddenly this person that she was idolizing in her hallucinations turns out to be a murderer. And then the rest of the film is her sort of like trying to cope and deal with that. And it's breaking her mentally in ways that like maybe don't make sense to the audience. Uh, well, but and then now they, they start. I think you hit the nail on the head there. It. If they don't make sense to the audience, I think it's just more confusion. Like I like this idea, like this train of thought, but I think she's our POV character. We need to know what she knows. Well, even the idea that even if we do know what she knows, her being haunted by visions of Sandy after that suddenly take on a much more sinister tone, right? Mm-hmm. Because now Sandy's not a victim who she's trying to find the mystery about. She's now being haunted by the spirit of a murderer. And like that could in itself turn into a predatory thing. I, I, I worry that that muddies the theme of the movie, but mm-hmm. that's, it, it kind of turns, but it also kind of turns the, the, the prey becoming the predator thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, th- and almost a disproportionate revenge thing, maybe like, 
yeah, Jack had it coming. Did everybody have it coming? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Because she okay. becomes a serial killer, right? Hang on, hang on. How about this? How about how about the the abuse itself is earlier in the movie is not explicit. Like, uh, you know, it's you're not you're not entirely sure what is happening between Jack and Sandy. Okay, so like when we're when we're leading up to that that scene uh we're getting Jack and and Sandy or Sandy's increasingly becoming more hostile towards Jack um but maybe it seems like she's doing that because she's not getting where she wants to in her career or something like that right but instead so what happens is Eloise uh witnesses the murder straight up. She witnesses Sandy murdering Jack, and then and and it seems like to us that she's murdered him for these superficial reasons. And then th- through the course of the third act, it begins to make more sense about like who Jack was, what he was doing, and then and then we can have uh, Sandy actually have a have a reveal of who she is and what she's done and why she did it and why it makes sense. She did it. I, I do actually like that framing better because then it still is a mystery and it ties into this, uh, this theme in the movie Mm -hmm. about the nostalgia for the sixties because Eloise has this rose colored view of life in the sixties. And you have that with Jack being her manager and se- her career seemingly starting to take off and then kind of faltering. And then she murders Jack and that's the glasses off moment. And right. then from there, she starts to see all the ugliness. Like it starts to get revealed yes. to her what was really going on in that relationship, why Sandy was becoming resentful of Jack, how Jack was abusing and exploiting her and what ultimately led to the murder. And you get, you finally get that context and the reality of what was going on in that moment in the sixties. Right. You know, you know, it could also it be works. great. It's like you could, with the boyfriend, you could have yeah, his relationship mirror that so that uh, she, be, she, you know, initially there, you know, he be, he's like a lifeline in the school because he's he's actually nice to her. And then they begin to begin to date and have a lot of fun together. And then as she's experiencing this fallout between uh, Sandy and Jack, her relationship with her boyfriend I forget that act. John. John. John starts to deteriorate as well. So then you can have, you, you can sort of play with those, the reality. So that way you get the conflict in the reality and in the, and in the uh, uh, dream sequences. And you can show how the world has changed as well. Their relationship is clearly on the rocks because she's having visions and being like, have like the, the wool is being pulled off her eyes. John can still be a nice guy by the end. I don't think mm-hmm. he needs to be a repeat of the guys in the sixties. I think that that that's a hopeful ending. If yeah. he, if he is genuinely a nice guy in the end yeah. and either they end on good terms or they get back together. I yeah. think that's, that's they, a hopeful can, ending to it. He can make mistakes, but like it's, it's out of like an attempt to, to help, you know, he can yeah. help them. Mm-hmm. He can help in the wrong way that sort of like creates more, Friction, uh, conflict yeah. and friction but yeah like he's he could always be sort of like on the altruistic well, side and plus she's she is seeing the dynamic of their relationship informed by what she's seeing yeah. in her visions right so 
Like she's going to, she's going to like much in the way that in the real movie, she misreads Lindsay. She could be misreading the relationship with John. Yeah. My other um, point. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. oh sorry. Uh, because I, no. I did have two points. Um, my second point was, could we make the movie more personal and more dangerous for Eloise? Could Sandy have been Eloise's mother or grandmother? Yeah. I love both of these idea, but I, <laughs> I, I had fixes for with what's on the paper that I was only like halfway through. No, no. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so both of these are fun ideas, but I was I had fixes that keep most oh, of I the, thought, the pieces I thought you were in done. Order. I'm very sorry. No. I know I said I, I I had it in two parts and I sort of said it like it was two, but I love these ideas. These are all as good as what's what's here. So um yeah, there's there, so you so you're pitching that that Miss Collins is either the mom or or the grandma? Not necessarily Miss Collins, but just like could and this this is a huge rewrite, but there's this a, a little bit of a hanging mystery about what exactly happened to Eloise's mother, why she went crazy, why she killed herself yeah. in it while she was doing exactly what Eloise was doing, trying to become a fashion designer in London. Um what if what if Eloise going back there and having the shining, she starts to see her mother's life from years earlier. And then this whole thing plays out with her mom instead. And I said, maybe mm-hmm. grandmother because of the sixties thing, but there's no reason you couldn't bump it up a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then she could learn what actually happened to her mother. And you could have this, this whole repeating generational trauma thing. I don't know. It's it's a half-formed idea, but it's just the idea of you have the mother there, you have the mother's suicide there, you have the mystery about the mother a little bit kind of planted early on, and it never really goes anywhere. It does go nowhere. And, and you have her being able to peer into the past. Why not make it much more personal? Why not make it a family member? Why make it a total stranger? Just yeah, or like, what if you're gonna have this thing about seeing the mom? Why have it be about a total stranger? Like, why is either the mom? Why is Sandy a stranger, and or the mom is there, and yeah. or? Um. <laughs> yeah, no, and and it would make sense. Like, she sees her mom in the mirror, and then when she finally gets to London and uh, starts to live her mom's life, she starts to see her mom more and more, and then suddenly she's swept up into like a vivid dream of like her mom doing something and falling in with this guy and then the relationship turning abusive and all of these other predatory men and like that would be devastating it would be much more personal it would be much Mm -hmm. more effective i'm curious why that wasn't the direction they went yeah yeah i really feel like the the seeing the mom in the mirror thing is just to like slightly lay the groundwork that she sees shit and it doesn't go anywhere other than that. And yeah. it's it's pretty superfluous. So, yeah. Anyway, with all of that said, with both of those points brought up, Liam, great. Pitches. Please, please continue your fix. <laughs> yeah. So I don't I don't want to like poo poo these ideas. Greg's suggestion that, you know, we do, in fact, see Sandy murder um, Matt Smith uh, adds a whole new context to the third act, making it more personal. Also very valid because the inclusion of the mom makes no sense. Those are both great ideas. But I feel like I have untangled what is presented to us by fixing sort of the two parts. The first part being the lies, the uh, obscure that scene in the glass on the ceiling so that we don't know who kills who uh, and make Lindsay's reveal less shitty and legitimate, more less shitty, more legitimate. 
great. If that is in place, you can also fix the tonal clusterfuck that is the third act, um, where we go from empathizing and following Sandy to suddenly being asked to fear her because she is a knife-wielding maniac uh, and possibly empathize with the, the, the ghost rapists who are begging for help. That all makes no sense, and, and I can fix that too. We find out uh, Lindsay's cop's benevolent and that Sandy is still then therefore still alive. Uh, I believe in the movie she basically just like, she goes to the cops and then Sandy just straight up tells her, yeah? It's like, actually, that was me and I killed a bunch of guys. I'm Sandy. I killed Matt Smith. Also, there's poison in your tea. <laughs> and also there's poison in your tea. Yeah. So we're we're asked to suddenly like take this person we've been empathizing with the whole movie and treat her as the villain. That makes no sense. So if we find out that you know Lindsay's a cop and therefore Sandy is still alive, move the scene of the ghosts pleading with her way up where now she's like, "Well, then why am I if Sandy's alive, why am I still seeing these ghosts?" And they're like she killed us. Sandy killed us all. She killed Matt Smith and she killed us all. Help us. And understandably, she's like, fucking no. You're all monsters. Maybe you deserved it. I think I know where or you're at least going with this something. and I, I like where you're going. Right? But So she she learns from the ghosts, from the, the, the dead rapists that, that Matt Smith was killed by Sandy. Uh, Jack was killed by Sandy. Goes and confronts Sandy about it. And there's a great line in the movie as it is where Sandy is like, I'm not going to prison. I've been in prison my whole life. And instead of turning the third act into this action-packed, burning house, knife-wielding conflict, you have a somber, heavy scene where Sandy explains her shit to Eloise and goes, what? And they already kind of do this a little bit, but lean into it way more. No one... Yeah, I've just committed, uh, admitted to killing all of these these men, or at least Jack. No one's going to believe you, L. No one's going to believe you at all. You went from Sandy's dead to Sandy's a murderer. No one's going to believe you. You're hysterical. You got Lindsay killed. You threatened your coworker or your your schoolmate with a knife. Fuck, you know, d- too bad. You're never gonna you're never gonna get me on these trumped up charges. Get out of my house. And instead of having a whole burning building, knife-wielding fight, you just have that arc for Eloise be like, wow, you are in a prison of your own making. And you know what, Sandy? Your life is still defined by Jack and the men who abused you. Even after killing them all, you are still being controlled by them. And and because it tries to have these themes of like men are abusive but also like the men controlling women i think is a much more interesting idea to explore uh and so just sort of have eloise be like whether you're a lover or a killer they still define you you are still defined by your relationship to these men and now you have to sit in your smelly house full of corpses dealing with the hell you've made for yourself and uh, eloise's arc is learning to not let men control her, not be defined by the men in her life, uh, and just basically leave Sandy to sit and stew in her own hateful juices. Uh, and it doesn't, then we don't have to try to buy Sandy as a knife-wielding maniac, because she's not. She even says, I agree, those men had it coming, you're a victim of circumstance, you did what you had to. So if she did what she had to, why are we also afraid of her poisoning 
our main character and her boyfriend. I have an alternate version, which still gives us a a climactic showdown with Sandy. If you really want to have her dramatic scene of, of past Sandy climbing up the staircase after Eloise, because admittedly it was a pretty, pretty rad shot. Um, You have, you can still have that reveal come a little earlier where uh, Mm -hmm. Eloise discovers that the men are actually trying to get help because they have all been murdered by Sandy. And she's at this point, empathizing with Sandy. She's like, no, you guys, you're all monsters. Like you deserve to have this happen and I'm not going to help you. Um, Cause I had suggested earlier on the idea of disproportionate revenge. Mm-hmm. And what if then for the third act after, after we've had this confrontation with the men um, after um, she's had this confrontation with uh, with Lindsay and gotten him injured. Maybe she gets called back in by the cops. She needs to get, she's just done. She wants to get out of London. She asks John, because she's hung up with the cops or something, to go and get her things. And he goes back mm. to the house to get her things. And it's at it's around this time that she learns that yeah. not all the men who were killed were deserving. Sandy became just this serial killer. And she realizes she's just put this guy that she likes in mortal danger. And she rushes back to the house in time Amazing. for in time to catch Sandy attempting to murder John. And you still have this climactic showdown. And that's, because that's because great. Sandy, as far as Sandy's concerned, any man, especially a man who she already thinks she saw potentially abusing Ellie, uh, because remember, we had the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the weird thing with the vision earlier on could easily be misconstrued. She realizes she's put a guy she really likes in mortal peril and she goes back and that's the impetus for confronting Sandy. That I love that because my as I wrote this out, I'm like, my the only problem with my fix is the third act yeah. conclusion is a somber conver- conversation about the patriarchy and men controlling <laughs> women and not anything at all exciting. Well, in so, in my exciting version it solves the problem of why do we buy Sandy suddenly becoming threatening to Eloise? She's not, she's threatening to John, John, who, who might I add on the nose is named John. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Literally she kills John's. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so we, now there's danger. We know there's danger and you obscure that he would be in danger right up until that, like last shoe drops, that last pin drops into place. And Eloise realizes, I've just sent him to his death. Like, oh my mm-hmm. God. And she yeah, rushes really. back to the house to you try to me. save him. And she gets there just in time. Like he's already injured, but he's alive. And then you have the confrontation with Sandy. And then you can you can be like, like how many men, like, yes, a lot of the men you killed, Jack certainly deserved it. Some of the men you killed probably deserved it. John doesn't deserve it. Like, what have you become? Yeah, that, I love that. It's 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 a nice compromise. Um, because yeah, it, it, mine, mine ends with like a reflection on, on not letting men control you and the patriarchy, but does not involve any burning buildings or knives. <laughs> so. and, and you can still have I, that confrontation just with a burning building and knives. Yeah, so. absolutely. I, I, I um, rather, I rather like the, uh, the, the somber one too. I think, I think actually going into this being fairly nervous about trying to like, I think we all were a little trepidatious <laughs> about trying to like fix it, but, uh, I, I think. We wound up with um, three pretty solid ideas of how to course correct. I think it, I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I got the only little thing I want to add to mine. I do think that it muddles the 
like the theme of like what the problem with men is is also muddled throughout mm-hmm. and i think in my version you also retroactively go back and have slightly more um examples of men trying to control women the way um jack the pimp tries to control sandy um where as opposed to this this sort of nebulous like sometimes men are bad and creepy it's like well no sometimes men try to try to force themselves in a myriad ways on women hell you could even have a thing with Lindsay, where yes he's a helpful guy who's trying to look out for women but he does so in a very demeaning overbearing like i know what's good for you listen to me stay away from all those creeps who think they know what's good for you and yeah um just put some of that in there to help reinforce the theme that i i'm going to for the end here but mm-hmm. fuck yeah sweet yeah. nailed it <laughs> nailed it speaking of nailed it so did our listeners thank you to everyone who commented we always appreciate your thoughts we love reading them on air gives us perspectives we hadn't considered uh, or just some funny quips. Uh, this time was no different. Fellow podcasters, uh, so what happens next? Says, would have to rewatch for specifics, but definitely tightening up the story. This is a great movie, but it does get a little long. Not I mean, I'm not sure if uh, the runtime is any is an issue yeah. for me. Story definitely needs tightened up, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris says, uh, Chris, I believe this is the individual who suggested this film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, hot on the heels of us talking uh, New Mutants. Chris says, uh, I thought it was too obvious that Terrence Stamp wasn't really who she thought he was. And I had a fix for that, but I can't remember it uh, now. <laughs> I also thought the creature design was too Doctor Who for a story that should not be Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that. Yeah. I see that. Yeah, those ghosts are very Whovian. I love Terrence Stamp, but does his character really serve a purpose other than the red herring? And no. like a really <laughs> poorly done red herring. <laughs> really poorly done. That's, yeah, either cut him entirely or do what I said and have him show up a little bit more in the 60s. Uh, either truly benevolent or this weird misguided benevolence where he's like still telling women what to do. <laughs> yeah, because he's, he's only in one scene in the 60s, right? That's it. He's he's yeah. in the middle of a montage oh, yeah. right. in one yeah, scene. yeah. Like he's <laughs> how like is and that's I think that's why it doesn't feel like a red herring. It just feels like left out information. Is mm-hmm. you're like like when you're watching the movie, who else could he be but Matt Smith? There are no other male characters from the past that would still be alive, yeah. threatening people. Yeah. What that cop we met for thirty seconds once couldn't be him. He's barely a character. I don't think we we barely get his name. In fact, we literally don't get his name. That's right. Yeah. Until he dies. Well, he can't so. get his name because he has to be revealed as Lindsay. <laughs> That's Lindsay, yeah. a guy we haven't met. <laughs> so, uh, last thought from Chris here. Uh, the story definitely needed a man as a threat, but maybe he should have been jolly and nice instead of Terrence Stamp. Yeah. Sure. There you go. That's what I'm saying. At Perpetual Cinema says, I would have defined the rules of her transporting as it seemed to be based more on getting cool shots. I think just doing that could have opened them up to some stronger moments. Yeah, make it a little more clear how and why she's getting her visions. I can see that. Like, I'm okay yeah. with the way it's kind of just nebulous, but maybe maybe that would have tightened things up a little bit and let, left I, things I a little less nebulous. I think it's okay if it's nebulous, if it's if it's maybe more a bit more nebulous from the outset um Mm -hmm. you know maybe maybe okay here's one maybe if instead of having the dance in her room 
with the uh, the paper dress that she's made. Maybe she's dancing in high society, uh, you know, in her dreams, and then it sort of like revealed that like she's actually just in a room, uh, and you know, when her mom or mother interrupts you, in, when her grandma interrupts her with the letter. Uh, she just kind of like has to come to for a second. So like, there's sort of like a moment where it feels like, you know, her she was you know completely trans transported to somewhere else, rather than just being uh into uh, daydreaming. I don't know. Maybe that maybe that's something. I don't know. Uh, and that's it for listener comments. Thanks to to everyone who who shared their thoughts. So, and that will conclude this episode of I have some notes. Uh, please follow us on, uh, the social medias, facebook.com slash I have some notes at I have some notes on Twitter at I have some notes pod on Instagram. Uh, and please give us a subscription, a rate, a review, a star, a thumbs up, wherever it is you're listening to this clicky, the thinger that says you liked it. Hey, the men in this movie were really terrible and, uh, that's pretty sad, but hopefully, uh, men today are a little less terrible question mark like modern men yeah uh, you can find out more about that by checking out the modern manhood podcast where herman viegas interviews guests who offer varied perspectives on masculinity you can check that out and more right now at albertapodcastnetwork.com and we're taking a little holiday breaky so we will see you next year in uh, in 2023 when we'll be going over our favorite movies of 2022 excited for that uh until then i've been your host liam kreswick i'm scott c bourgeois and i'm greg beaver happy holidays and keep watching the skies quit and hit it let's get some of that track from dave d dozy beaky mckintitch (laughs) 